1: all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy, And today we were talking about our favorite royal monikers and also our least favorite royal monikers. Mine is Henry the Impotent. Sarah, what's yours? Bloody Mary is pretty bad. Louis the Indolent, also bad. But at least Bloody Mary has a drink named after her and you cannot say that about Henry the
2: Impotent. That's that's a good point, Katie.
3: But there is a name that everyone knows, and that is Catherine the Great. And like Elizabeth I, a subject of many of our past episodes, she is a strong woman who ruled an empire and made it
2: greater. She's known not only for her political acumen, which really kept her in the public imagination, but also for her many love affairs, which... We'll get into that a little bit later. Oh, actually a little bit on this podcast. And of course that long standing rumor that she met her death copulating with a horse. That's that's quite the resume we have there. Yeah, Sarah, I think so. So this is
3: part one of the life of Catherine the Great. We will have a follow-up episode because you know we love a series. So no one is born the great, obviously, maybe the the cute or the fat or the crying, but not the great. And this baby was born Sophia Auguste Frederica, a German princess, before there was really a Germany, on May 2nd, 1729. Her father, Christian August is referred to as an obscure princeling in more than one source, which made me wince for him just a little bit. He's always referred to as minor, and he's very much loved by his daughter. But her mother, on the other hand, was a bit of a handful, and she was Princess Joanna Elizabeth of holstein gottorp And her brother had been engaged to Elizabeth I of Russia for a time. And when he died,
2: Elizabeth kept a soft spot for his family. So when the Empress Elizabeth needs a wife for her nephew, Peter III, she thinks about this family that she's always held so fondly. And she thinks that young Sophia might be a good bride. So Sophia and her mother travel to Russia to curry the Empress's favor. They're really successful at it, uh, Elizabeth likes Sophia a lot, even though court life proves to be rather difficult. It's very expensive to keep up appearances
3: in court. And this isn't something that Sophia and her family can do. It's very strict, especially the rules of etiquette. And because she's under everyone's eye as this possible marriage material. exactly. And people are always watching her, but she's watching them, too. And she's learning how to play the political game, which is something that Peter never learns to do. And although she likes him at first, the more she gets to know him, she realizes that he's going to be a hindrance and not a boon to her successful future at court. He's referred to in all the things we were reading as, well, often as a buffoon.
2: Very often. He's generally considered inept. He's considered not well-mannered, not cultured, lazy, and possibly an alcoholic. So Great personal dad. exactly. Exactly. And here's Sophia basically bound to to marry this guy. And she's understandably a little bit lonely. So she does a lot of reading. She becomes acquainted with the ideals of the Enlightenment. And she also starts studying Russian. And she studies Russian until she's fluent, which is something that definitely impresses her future subjects. Right. She's immersing herself in Russian culture. Yeah. Not being this foreign, distant, isolated ruler. She's she's going to be involved if she's going to play this game. And the same goes for studying the Orthodox Church and eventually even leaving her religion of Lutheranism and uh, committing to Orthodoxy pretty wholeheartedly. Which is where we get her name, Catherine. It changed when she converted and
3: she had to in order to move to the next stage of her life marriage
2: with Peter. So in addition to all those stellar qualities that we just mentioned, the alcoholism, the poor manners, Peter is also just a really really weird guy. He's obsessed with soldiers and military stuff, but not in a good sort of heir to the throne way, more like a no, little boy?
3: Yes, overgrown little boy way. He plays puppets in bed and makes her play them as well. Um, by the way, like a lot of these details I got from Virginia Rounding's biography of Catherine the
2: Great, which is pretty great. Puppets in bed, definitely a good detail to know about someone. He drinks a lot, as we mentioned, and it's not just sullen drinking, it's carousing until the wee hours of the morning, sometimes forcing Catherine to come along with them. And they have nothing in common. She's smart,
3: she's charming, she's intellectually curious. He's none of those things, and the divide just grows the longer that they're together. In her memoirs, she describes herself as a miserable creature during this time in her life. And she is, of course, being pressured or even bullied by Elizabeth, to have a son. They need an heir. And the court treats her as what she is, just, you know, a baby-making machine, a vessel for this heir. And so she's kept fairly isolated. Elizabeth puts spies in as her ladies, and she's not really allowed to have friends. She's supposed
2: to be concentrating on one thing and one thing only. As, As soon as she develops a friendship, even, the lady is sent away, and she's supposed to get back to the task at hand. The only problem is, they don't really know how to have sex. And it's possible that Peter had impotence problems, but he may just have not known what he was doing at all. Just so Marie Antoinette and her husband, that's all I could think of. Exactly. So their marriage isn't consummated for a long time. And only then it's because it was arranged for Peter to learn the ropes from this young widow, which I, I can't understand how they drafted someone for that job. Now that he's able to perform, Peter and Catherine do engage in
3: conjugal activities, but They hate each other, so it must have been really awkward, not to mention not very fun. So they don't do it very often, and in the eyes of those watching her so carefully, it's not often enough that she'll produce this air. So again, an arrangement is made, but this time for Catherine. She had grown rather close to a man at court, Sergei Saltikov.
2: And this relationship is now permitted or even encouraged. So, surprise, surprise, Catherine gives birth to this much-desired son, names him Paul. There's a question, was it Peter's child, was it Sergei's? Bets are actually that it was Peter's child. He apparently was a lot like his father. Well, and he had some of his... Some of his similar interests. He liked <laughs> Prussia a lot. Not that that would necessarily be inherited, but... Interests the Prussia. <laughs> so immediately after Paul's birth, Elizabeth whisks him away, and she's the one who raises this spoiled, sickly heir, whatever Catherine may have wanted from him.
3: And she had another child, a daughter named Anna Petrovna, not to be confused with other Anna Petrovna's we may have talked about, in 1757. She probably was not Peter's kid, um, but handsome Stanislav Poniatowski's, another lover, and he will come into play in our next podcast, that Anna died before she reached her second birthday, and she's never spoken of again.
2: Which is Strange. But speaking of more illnesses, Elizabeth, the Empress, had been ill for quite some time. It's possible she had epilepsy. She definitely had some form of edema, and she knew she was dying. She died on December twenty fifth, 1761, after a nosebleed
3: she may have hemorrhaged to death. And Catherine acted respectfully after the Empress's death. She wears mourning, she prays publicly for her. And this is a smart move. People... You know, people like that sort of thing. Remember how angry people were when Elizabeth II of England apparently didn't show enough grief after Princess Diana died. Peter, on the other hand, thought it was a good idea to play a game behind the hearse that involved a lot of running and watching his cape swish about. And then he would hang back for a little bit so he could run some more. And once he caught up, he would do the same thing over and over again. So, Picture this. There's his aunt's coffin, people in mourning for their most pious autocrat, and then their new ruler, who's gleefully playing childish games in a funeral procession. It was horrifying, and it was a
2: very good example of the kind of man that Peter was. So people are immediately thinking how can we get rid of this guy? Who can we replace him with? He obviously has problems. And so some think it's time to bring back Ivan the Sixth, who is that sad little baby growing up in the prison that we mentioned in an earlier... Actually, we did a whole podcast on him earlier. And some people think that, no, forget, forget this strange boy who's grown up in prison. Let's enthrone Catherine, because she's actually very impressive. And she resists, though... And that's because she has a little secret. She is pregnant again, and
3: it is not Peter's. It was her lover, Grigory Orloffs. We'll talk about him in our second episode and a little bit more.
2: The key here is that everybody would know it was not Peter's baby either. So she'd be put on the national stage, so to say, and be revealed as pregnant. It would be devastating for her hopes, yeah, the Emperor. sex has ceased Empress. as far as Peter the Third goes.
3: She manages to hide her pregnancy the entire time. No one figures it out. And when Alexei was born in April, she hands him over to one of her servants. So he's out of the way.
2: Maybe we're clearing a path to the throne. So Catherine's not gonna stage a coup quite yet, at least. And so we get to experience a little bit of Peter the Third on the throne. In February 1762, there's a bit of a class shakeup when Peter declares that there will be no more compulsory service for nobles during peacetime. And nobody knows what to think of this. The, the nobles are wondering, is this good for us? Well, yeah, we don't have to have service, but on the other hand, this is how we would rise in the ranks. The serfs are not quite sure how it affects them. It's a decision that was made without any thought. Which... Describes a lot of things that Peter does, actually. His first possible
3: mistake was in angering the church by secularizing monastic property, but his biggest one dealt with the Seven Years' War. Russia had almost beaten Frederick of Prussia after years of fighting and so many Russian soldiers dying. Peter stops the war, makes peace with Prussia, and they offer him land, and he won't even take it. You know, no, no, you keep it, Prussia. So all those soldiers died for nothing and it became clear that Peter cared much more for Prussia than he did for Russia, especially when he ignores the things that are important to them, like, you know, uh, learning their language and he skips the coronation ceremony, which was a huge deal. You know, people want to celebrate when there's a new person and it also had some religious overtones that that needed to be there for the Russian people to be behind him.
2: So ultimately, even Peter's good deeds as emperor, like he does get rid of the secret police, for example. People don't pay any heed to that. It's completely ignored because here's this guy making disastrous decisions for the country and not even seeming to care. And there are more warning signs. He
3: won't share his power at all with Catherine, and people are beginning to worry that he might get rid of her in favor of his mistress. And remember, people really do like her. She's devout. She clearly loves her country. And the general sentiment is that they would be better off with her at the helm than this guy who's now dressing his military in Prussian
2: uniforms. Plus, he's drinking more than ever. And he doesn't know anything about business. He's keeping bad company. He's getting bad advice. He's just in this terrible downward spiral. And the last straw is at a very fancy
3: dinner with a lot of impressive people at which Peter calls Catherine a fool in front of all of them and then repeats it in case everyone hadn't heard, humiliating her in this brutal way. She's in tears. Someone else has to distract everyone from what's going on. But Peter is the fool and he is not cut
2: out for the job
3: of ruling all the rushes.
2: So with everybody hating Peter III, it's time for some action. And there's a conspiracy afoot to crown Catherine now that that Babies out of the way. And she's the one heading up the conspiracy. Surprise, surprise. She has 30 officers, 10,000 subalterns, according to Virginia Rounding's book. And she has financial support from not only Russia, but Denmark. And a very detailed plan about how this is going to go down. And lest you feel bad for Peter, he's been told about the coup. He
3: dismisses it, not having much respect for the formidable ambitions and talents of his neglected wife. And in true Peter style, he stays up partying
2: until 4 a.m., completely unconcerned. And Which, just a note on Catherine, she will never, ever ignore rumors about conspiracies or coups. She knows better. And so Peter is not in St. Petersburg when the coup takes place. And it doesn't go quite according to plan. Catherine has this great rundown for how everything's supposed to go, but Things don't fall into place. One conspirator is arrested and the others have to hurry away before he reveals what they're about to do. Catherine herself leaves her apartment so fast that she's still wearing her nightcap.
3: She changes out of that nightcap and gets all fancy and goes to regiments she already knew supported her and they swear allegiance to her. And it's a bit of a domino effect. Once you've got the first one, you just move on to the second. And at the church of Our Lady of Kazan, site of her wedding, she is proclaimed empress of all the Russias and names her son Paul as her successor. More people swear their allegiance at the Winter Palace.
2: So Peter's people tell him about the coup, but he doesn't even believe it. So he's a real good example of a dim historical figure. He even looks for Catherine at their house at Mont Plaisir while Russia is busy trying to crown her. I mean, he's looking around for her like a child playing bed. hide and seek. And she is long gone, Peter. <laughs> she is never coming back. She proclaims that
3: Peter III endangered Orthodoxy, sullies Russia's military glory and undermined the empire's institutions. I think that last one is debatable, but I will give her the first two, even if she goes on herself to endanger the Orthodox Church, as we'll see in our next episode. But when she parades in front of the people, it's in a tricorn hat and a guard's uniform carrying a saber. This is a woman who understands the importance of signifiers and of ceremony, unlike Peter. No silly
2: cape games for her. So you might wonder, how is Peter dealing with this now that he finally has accepted that it might be for real? He's not dealing with it. He's just drinking. He's thinking up more out there ideas. And then he finally realizes, yes, she really has gotten him and he starts sending letters asking for forgiveness, promising that he'll change and then simply asking, well, can I at least go to Holstein with my mistress and back out of the whole thing? She doesn't reply to the first few and to the last,
3: she simply sends him an abdication letter to sign. It's pretty cold, Catherine. He's stripped of his uniform and sent away to an estate, later to be transported to Schlossberg, which is where they kept Ivan the Sixth. She does send him his pug for company, which made Candace very happy, but she denies his request for
2: his mistress. You only get so much, Peter. And Catherine deposed him on June twenty eighth, 1762. She's crowned September twenty second, 1762. And just a little note on Catherine's crown, it has more than 4000 diamonds and some giant ruby as well. Nice. So the people and the soldiers get very, very drunk, though, after the coronation, and they almost riot. So Sort of an inauspicious start, I would say. Celebration plus vodka, sounds
3: very auspicious to me. <laughs> but as far as Peter being imprisoned, he's still drinking with his guards and he's miserable over his reduced circumstances. He's getting very, very sick very often with some digestive ailments and he doesn't want to use the bathroom in front of his guards, which is understandable.
2: So one of the brothers of Catherine's lover, Orlov, writes in a letter to her this very cryptic comment, I fear that he might die tonight, but even more, I fear that he might live. Hmm. What's that supposed to mean, Orlov? We get another letter from the Orlovs that's
3: very vague and almost incoherent. The bottom line being, there was an argument. Peter was killed. They don't remember what happened.
2: Sounds like a bad story, but Catherine doesn't announce Peter's death until the next day and gives natural causes, colic, inflammation of the bowels, and apoplexy. But when his body's displayed, it's obvious that something very, very bad happened to it. He has a black face, and you can see the blood through the skin, which seems a little like he was poisoned. That would explain some of those ailments. Exactly, and there are also strangulation marks on his neck. So clearly, not just not so natural. A case of colic. She didn't go
3: to the burial, and he wasn't allowed to be buried in the illustrious burial place of his forebears either. People think that she killed him, and their son would grow up thinking that she killed him. But did she? The consensus seems to be that she definitely knew about it, and she never said it explicitly, please go murder my husband, but she okayed it, and her wishes were clear, and she would protect the men who committed the crime and reward them for it. And Catherine believed that it was her destiny to rule, that it was God's hand guiding her life to that purpose, but I think she did her best to help it along.
2: So that brings us to our next topic, which is going to be Catherine in power. We'll get to discuss all those interesting things that happen when she's finally empress in her own right. And that brings us to listener
3: mail. Our first letter is a correction from Laura. In our Oscar Wilde podcast, we said the Oxford College of Magdalene, like Mary Magdalene, it should be pronounced maudlin'. And she says, it's another little Oxford oddity. Not sure if it's done just to torture those tourists who don't know and ask after the college only to receive the confusing answer. There is a Magdalen bridge, but no college. Very weird and very Oxford. So thank you, Laura.
2: And thank you, England. So we've also got a lot of really nice Hawaiian postcards since our episode on Hawaii, including three just... So beautiful postcards. I could just look at them all day from Vicki from Hawaii. And I think it's just sort of made us want to take a nice island vacation. right? I here. was staring wistfully at them for a few minutes at my desk before
3: I brought them over to Sarah's. Yes. If you have mail you'd like to send us, we have a, a tricky way of making you find our address on the How Stuff Works homepage. If you'd like to send us email, we're at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we have a Facebook fan page if you'd like to keep up what we're doing day to day. And please check out our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.
3: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
1: year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer.